Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Be careful what you wish for. The economy rebounds, earnings beat, but now we have to worry about all the pressures that come with that. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week we got more signals that the economy is roaring back from indications of GDP growth over 10% for the quarter and maybe 8% for the year. I'm expecting growth to be at a better rate than what we have seen so far. And earnings that were so good that they raised questions about the analysts who underestimated them, driven in one way or another by the authorities opening the economy back up. Broadway tickets go on sale today at 100% capacity for theaters. The shows open September 14th. But then the jobs numbers for April came in way below what anyone was expecting. Under normal circumstances, that would be a great month. We still have a steep, a steep climb. We still have ways to go. Which may be a blip, but there were other storm clouds on the horizon, with supply chains overwhelmed. We're having regular conversations with the administration and members of Congress to find the right solution. A growing fear of increased taxes and the ever-present fear of inflation, made worse by Treasury Secretary Yellen suggesting we might just see higher interest rates. We've been through a year-long health and economic crisis, putting pressures on our governments like few have ever seen. But things appear to be coming back, and now we have to think about how we're going to pay the bills. New Jersey is one of the states hit hardest by the pandemic and already has one of the highest tax rates in the country. So we asked its governor, Phil Murphy, what paying those bills may mean for taxpayers. 
Listen, we, we presented a budget uh, six weeks ago that had zero increases in taxes and fees. We want to protect the middle class at every turn. We are the quintessential middle class state, uh, and we want to regain that mantle. We believe we're America's number one state to raise a family. And that includes making sure that the value proposition works for families, particularly young families who are considering moving here or staying here. Uh, I was gratified to see the census numbers last week. Uh, we were the number one state in America in terms of the amount by which we exceeded the estimate that was put out last year. That's for a reason. People are coming here to raise their family. We got to make sure that we, we continue to have the number one schools, quality of life, great transit, but also that the value proposition works. In the census that just came out, there was a, a, a migration toward Florida, toward Texas, toward some lower taxing states. How conscious are you of that as you set your budgets? How concerned are you that New Jersey could really lose some of the more affluent in particular to places like Florida? Well, listen, uh, New Jersey's population grew over 5% over the course of the decade. Uh, again, the, 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 the space we occupy is that that moniker, which we don't take lightly, America's number one state to raise a family. We have the number one public education system in America, top handful of healthcare system, a location second to none. We're fixing uh, transit. Uh, the quality of life is exceedingly high. That's our value proposition. Some states come at you and say, listen, we want you to move here because we have low taxes. Um, that's that's their that may be their value proposition. Ours is a much more holistic and broader one. And Governor, you've identified specifically 16 municipalities in New Jersey of over 10,000 people that you're below 40 percent on, led by New Brunswick City. As you look at those, it looks to me, you know the state so much better than I do, but it looks to me like they tend to be lower income and, yes, minorities. What are the specific ways that you reach those populations? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't know that every one of the communities are, are majority communities of color, but they are largely. And we didn't put that list up to name and shame. This is just to give people a sense of what the remaining challenge is. We have too many people right now declaring victory. Our numbers have gotten a lot better, but we're not there yet. And so it's a variety of things. It's role models getting vaccinated. It's mobile vans. It's houses of worship. Uh, it's, it's getting to homebound individuals, homeless folks. Uh, it's a whole range of initiatives, uh, federally qualified health centers. There's no one magic wand. Uh, as it relates to equity, we are still on a journey. As we say often, the pandemic didn't create the inequities. It's laid them bare. And our vaccine program is a good example. Uh, it is a work in progress. Governor, as you know well, there's a push on to get people to go back into their offices. We had Goldman Sachs just say we want people back by a date certain. Uh, as that happens, that's going to put pressure on some of the transportation systems from New Jersey as people commute into Manhattan. Uh, right now, as I understand it, the public transit is really being avoided. You're down something like 70% in your capacity. Uh, how do you respond to that? First of all, financially, you can't run those transit authorities very long down 70% capacity. Can you financially? Yeah, there's a number of questions there. Number one, uh, the federal help, whether it's uh, prior coronavirus relief funds or American Rescue Plan money, or, or perhaps in this uh, debated right now infrastructure plan, well, we desperately need that help. Secondly, NJ Transit, uh, when we got into office, it was broken, it's fixed. And we've used the pandemic to fix it even faster. So I think folks are gonna find a clean, safe, reliable system. Thirdly, 
uh, you didn't ask it, but one of the ways we're going to get to 70% vaccination is to get our business community uh, to be proactive just as we are at the state level. In fact, we had a good call uh, with the Chamber of Commerce on this topic this morning, uh, getting businesses to be just as forward leaning into this as we are being as, at, at the state level. I think the transit commuting reality will be slow to recover, uh, but I think when folks come back and actually participate, uh, it'll be a positive experience. That was New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Coming up, big tech has more to worry about than just inflation and supply chains, as the antitrust challenges just keep on coming, this time for Apple. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Apple's 10-year relationship with Epic Games is unraveling in court this week. It's all about Epic's claim that Apple is using its market power to charge it too much for selling its games. And Apple's claim that Epic just doesn't want to play by the rules. Apple says if you build an app uh, for our platform, first of all, you can only distribute it through their store. They don't allow competing stores. And that's totally un-American and uncompetitive. In 2011, Tim Cook used Epic's game Infinity Blade 2 to show off Apple's new and powerful iPhone 4S. But Apple's relationship with the game maker went even deeper. In legal documents, Apple said it spent more than $1 million marketing games for Epic and even provided round-the-clock tech support for the game maker. The App Store isn't just a store. It's like a studio stocked with canvases, brushes, and paint. The tools that artists need to create their works. And it's a gallery where they can display and sell their creations. The relationship began souring in 2017 with the release of Epic's blockbuster hit, Fortnite. After that, Epic CEO and founder Tim Sweeney began publicly criticizing Apple's payment system, in which the company took as much as 30% of sales and blocked many developers from using other payment methods to avoid the fee. You can't have a tech monopoly dominating all, all interactions between consumers and businesses on a, a scale of billions of users. The final blow to the relationship came when Apple removed Fortnite from its app store last year after Epic activated its own payment system. Analytics firm Sensor Tower estimates the app store generated $22 billion in commissions last year for Apple from the $72 billion users spent on their devices we're absolutely going to see some form of legislation or additional scrutiny. So in the case of Apple, it'll be probably regulating the App Store. 
Apple's antitrust problems aren't just in the United States. EU regulators have accused Apple of violating competition laws by imposing unfair rules and fees on music streaming services that are on the App Store. We need antitrust regulation to return to what it used to be when we protected markets so that no one could dominate and block new entrants, no one could compete against people operating in the marketplace. And so this week, we saw the start of a three-week courtroom battle, complete with the Apple and Epic CEOs themselves taking the stand, along with a whole lot of experts, and no less than the fate of the App Store hanging in the balance. But former antitrust division head Bill Baer and Bloomberg Intelligence senior antitrust litigation analyst Jennifer Ree say it's an uphill battle for Epic's David to beat Apple's Goliath. They need to prove first that uh, Apple is a monopolist uh, in connection with its App Store and its requirement that uh, you uh, download through the App Store for the iOS devices. And then they need to prove that the requirement that you go through the App Store actually isn't any competitive requirement as opposed to what Apple says, which is something that is necessary to protect security and privacy of its iOS users. Uh, Jen, can you ever monopolize your own product? I mean, that's in a sense what the claim is here, right? Yeah, it's iOS. We invented it. We have it. So yes, we have all of it. You know, and this is part of their uphill battle. I mean, you can, but there are very, very few court cases where that actually was considered to be an appropriate relevant market. It just, it rarely is, and that's going to be very difficult for them. And, and you can see that because in the beginning beginning of the trial, Epic has really hammered on competition uh, um, and the lack of competition and the reason that all the other substitutes are different and aren't true substitutes. Uh, Bill, how much of this do you think might turn in the end on Apple's claim, as I understand it, that we need to do it this way for security purposes? There's a really legitimate business justification, even if you find we have monopoly power within our system. I think that says it exactly right, because being a monopolist is only one step in the process of finding an antitrust violation. You need to show, it needs to show that the requirements that, might, that Apple is imposing on, uh, on app developers are unreasonable or any competitive really serve no legitimate uh, justification. It, it does strike me, Jen, that uh, quite a few, what we would think of as tech companies have weighed in on the side actually of Epic Games, maybe the David in this battle, uh, in, including Facebook and Microsoft are saying, we find it really difficult as well. We've tried to get in uh, Spotify. Uh, would that have any effect on the judge as a practical matter? You know, I think, first of all, you know, in my mind, you have to think about the fact that Microsoft is a big competitor to Apple, you know, in many ways. You know, they're, they both they compete in the sale of computers and they have opposing, you know, operating systems. So, you know, Microsoft has something to benefit if Epic wins this trial. And, and what Microsoft and some of these other tech companies are providing is really anecdotal evidence. Uh, of where they do or don't compete and the difficulties that they've also had in negotiating with Apple to get their own game stores or their own game streaming into the Apple App Store. So it's anecdotal evidence, you know, and at the end of the day, I think it has some influence, but, but not significant. Bill, give us a sense of what the expert witnesses are going to be testifying to, because as I understand it, in most antitrust cases, really the economics drive an awful lot of it. The expert witnesses on either side and the judge is really going to put a lot of emphasis on that. What are they going to be testifying to? Well, I think they're going to have this dis uh, disputed visions 
of what the market looks like. Um, is uh, is Apple by virtue of uh, controlling what apps are downloaded to iOS users, iPads, iPhones? Uh, is is uh, is that actually just one way of competing in a much broader market where there are lots of ways of getting apps to other devices. There are lots of ways for gamers to play games. Whereas the Epic view is going to be, no, no, this is a restrictive, narrow market uh, where Apple is able to control the environment for anybody who uses its iOS system and basically ties the iPad and the iPhone to downloading software at a 30% commission rate for the software developers uh, only through only through Apple's uh, uh, platform. So they will present economic evidence that'll suggest Apple has pricing power that is suggestive of monopoly power. Apple's economists will talk about all the other ways in which people can play games or download other apps uh, or use your PC or your, your Mac to, uh, to compete. Thanks to Bill Baer of the Brookings Institution and Jennifer Ree of Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up, just when the auto market wants to come roaring back, the lack of microchips reigns it in. We hear from GM CEO Mary Barra on what she and her team are doing to manage the problem. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. GM announced its earnings this week, and they were strong, very strong, as the company sees demand for new cars come back stronger and faster than anyone anticipated a year ago. But there was a catch. A combination of a surging economy and a huge uptick in demand for consumer electronics has led to a dire shortage of microchips. And it turns out you can't make a car these days without some pretty sophisticated computers built right into those cars. We asked GM Chairman and CEO Mary Barra how she's managing a problem that will cost her up to $2 billion this year. There's not a lot of transparency between uh, the different automakers of what's happening. We're focused on GM, and I think what's been incredible is the work that we're doing with our purchasing group, our engineering group, our manufacturing group, and sales and marketing, and working with suppliers. You know, we've been working to build strong relationship with our suppliers for many, many years now. And there's just a team that is looking, understanding what chips are we going to have access to? How do we allocate those to our highest demand and, and, and products that we have limited or no ability to recover? because there's just such strong demand. We run those um, manufacturing operations uh, around the clock. And they're, they're just being creative and doing what engineers do of problem solving and, and uh, in some cases, re-engineering to get uh, the chips to um, the right products and to just um, find every opportunity we can to build a car, truck, or crossover and get it to the customer. So it's a mixed question, not just of the vehicles you sell, but also where you direct your chips, it sounds like. You want to direct it to the ones that really are the most important. Do, are you getting more chips, do you think, than you would have expected because of your purchasing department? Well, again, there's not a lot of transparency to say more than. Uh, you know, we were very uh, clear uh, last year of what we thought the demand was going to be this year and the chips that we had ordered. And so, you know, we're continuing to work with the supply base on that. And uh, again, but it's, I think it's looking for every opportunity and, and managing it centrally and also working uh, hand in hand with our JV in China. So uh, across the board, 
board, we are um, just uh, really being—I think the team is being really scrappy in finding ways that we can build um, the vehicles, not only full-size trucks and SUVs, but also our electric vehicle programs. And I think it's important to note that even with the challenges of the semiconductor uh, shortage, there is no impact on our electric vehicles, on our autonomous vehicles, and the growth initiatives that we've been talking about this first quarter. That was one of the questions I had, both for the Hummer that's coming out later this year and then the Lyric, which is coming out or sometime in the first half of next year. Is there going to be any delay because of the chip problem? Absolutely not. And I can tell you those vehicle programs are on track, and uh, I'm really excited to have uh, customers get in those vehicles and drive them, because I think they're going to be amazed. Uh, this problem isn't going away in the sense that, uh, as you go forward, you're going to make more and more cars that are going to require more and more chips. What is the longer-term solution to this, so we don't have this, this sort of problem you have this year? Well, I think we are going to see recovery. We think Q2 will be uh, the weakest for the year. We'll see some recovery in Q3, Q4. Uh, and we're working on a lot of long-term strategies. I don't have anything to share right now, but um, there's a, 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 you know, a whole um, menu of things that we're working on, processes that we're changing. Um, so more to come later in the year of how we'll make sure we're never in this situation again. But believe me, we have a dedicated team working on that as well. Uh, when it comes to batteries, you've sort of vertically integrated, as it were, with a joint venture where you're making your own batteries. Is there something like that, perhaps, that would make sense for GM? You know, I'm not going to take anything off the table. We're going to look at what uh, what we can do to make sure that we have the right number of automotive-grade chips uh, and that we it, it, it doesn't constrain our growth, because we see huge opportunity, not only with the product portfolio we have today, but with the strong electric vehicle products that we have coming. Uh, we hear some in Washington, both the Commerce Secretary and also I talked to one of your Michigan representatives, Haley Stevens, who suggested perhaps there needs to be some co-investment from the government, as well as the private sector, in chip production. Does that make sense from your point of view? I think making sure we have a, a, a secure supply chain um, at, for the growth that I think we're going to see, I think it's something that we all have to work together on. And we're having regular conversations with the administration and members of Congress to find the right solution. And uh, we'll continue to do that. In your presentation today, General Motors really lays out a fairly robust uh, program to really go to electric vehicles and to really deal with greenhouse gases over the longer term. You have very specific targets you're setting out there. How do you hope to achieve those? Well, I think it's making sure there's a whole ecosystem that when a customer looks at, can I buy an electric vehicle, they say, I'm going to have a better experience when I buy an electric vehicle. It's going to be a beautiful vehicle. It's going to be in the segment that I want to purchase because we can't, you know, a person, if they want a, an SUV or a crossover, they're not going to buy a sedan. It's got to meet them in the market where they want. But then it's also making sure there's a robust charging infrastructure. And we're working on that as well. And that will be not only what we're doing, for instance, we're putting uh, uh, charging in our workplaces, but also uh, working with communities and then working with all the startups that are in this business, connecting those. Uh, we just made an announcement that uh, we have now, we're going to provide access to 60,000 chargers across, uh, across the country to really give uh, confidence to customers as they buy an EV, and if it, even if it's their only vehicle, that they're going to have a robust charging infrastructure. And I think all those things combined, you know, beautiful vehicles meets their needs, the right range, and then charging available, customers are going to move to EVs. That was GM Chairman and CEO Mary Barra. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We welcome now our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, welcome. It's great to see you. So, first of all, start with these jobs numbers. They were so surprising to so many people. 266,000 instead of 1 million. Some people thought it would be 2 million. Do they tell us anything beyond this one data point? I think it's hard to interpret. My sense is that it's got a lot to do with the emerging labor shortages that we're hearing about almost everywhere, that managers in many different places are uh, talking about and worrying about it. And if people can't find workers, employment can't, employment's got to go up. Evidence for that is that we really had an extremely strong average hourly earnings print this month. Now, it's only one month, and they were down uh, last month, but they were up at a 9% annual rate. Uh, this month, and probably the figure was artificially held down by the fact that most of the new jobs were in low-wage sectors like uh, restaurants. So I think what we're seeing is more and more evidence of labor shortage, and maybe that'll prove to be transitory. Maybe it'll turn out that as people go back to school, um, more and more people come into the workforce and We'll lose that sense of labor shortage. But as I look at the data, I see much stronger evidence that people who retired over the last year aren't coming back. I see more and more evidence that people who in one way or another have changed around their lives aren't uh, coming back for a while. So I expect that as the economy grows rapidly, as everybody thinks it's going to over the next few months, that that labor shortage problem is going to grow, that that's going to be putting more and more pressure on wages, and that's ultimately going to move into uh, prices. So I actually think there's reason to think that inflation might even accelerate from where it is this summer, rather than the deceleration that the Fed and the Treasury are so confidently predicting. You know, it's further evidence for that view to look at the housing market, you see the prices of housing uh, rising at incredible mid, you know, double-digit rates in the teens. That probably is telling you that rents are going to be going up before long. Uh, that's why people are buying these houses in part. That's certainly why private equity is buying up a large amount of houses. And right so far, rental factor has been holding down the inflation indices, and that's about to change. So between the inventory issues, the labor shortage issues, 
the rental uh, issues, uh, I have to say that my concerns about inflation are increasing. Are we contributing to it in part by keeping people on the sidelines because of how much we're reimbursing them for being unemployed? That's something that both President Biden addressed this week and Secretary of the Treasury Yellen did. They were both asked pointedly, you're paying people a lot of not to work. Is that making the situation worse? Both of them thought that's not the problem. They think it's more a matter of having to stay home to take care of kids or elderly relatives. What do you make of that? Respectfully, uh, I think it is close to self-evident that the fact that people are being paid more to stay at home than they would be to work in millions of cases is reducing the available supply of labor. I think the fact that the fraction of the unemployed who are getting unemployment insurance is at record highs is contributing to people being more picky about jobs. You can argue that it's really important relief. You can argue that it's really important uh, insurance that we're providing. But I don't see how one can plausibly say that paying people more to not work than to work is having no effect on the availability of uh, workers. And I think we just need to recognize that. It may, probably was the right thing to do when we really wanted people to be very careful to stay home and not spread COVID. But I think it's very hard to justify and rationalize them uh, right now. Uh, Larry, as a macroeconomist, are, are you concerned at all that our models might not really let us know where we are? If we're driving the car too fast, is the speedometer working? Because we haven't seen this sort of phenomenon perhaps ever in the history of our economy. Uh, and let's be frank, the jobs numbers came in very different from what economists thought they were going to be. At the same time, we never saw the economy go down that fast, come back that fast. And goodness knows, with all the monetary and fiscal stimulus, do we really have a model that tells us where we are and where we're going? Look, I, I don't. I don't think any of us can predict with great precision, and I think overconfidence is a real uh, is a real problem. That's why I've always framed my prediction probabilistically. There's a one-third chance this will all work out well. There's a one-third chance that we're really going to push the inflation rate up in the way we did after Vietnam, during Vietnam, and into the 1970s. And there's a one-third chance that we're going to have some kind of fiscal monetary collision. So I think you got to recognize that uh, there's uh, uncertainty. I think you can discern sort of the broad structure and trend of the way things are moving. And I think the law of supply and demand is more reliable than most other economic laws. And it sure does seem like demand is rising relative to supply. And that certainly points towards uh, rising prices and some acceleration of inflation. So I think that's the tendency. But you're absolutely right, David, that there are both wild cards that come from the outside and there are doubts about uh, internal dynamics. And those are things that absolutely have to be uh, factored into uh, the analysis um, in, a, in a clear way. 
you know, another thing to look at just because they reflect a, a large number of views and certainly one shouldn't always assume they're right because they're often wrong is what's happening in markets. And what we're seeing in markets is that because the Fed is so clear about its reluctance to raise rates, um, you're seeing very little movement in nominal rates. But under the surface, you're seeing a reduction in real interest rates and an increase in the inflation premium that's priced into the difference between nominal bonds and uh, real bonds. And we haven't seen a three or four month movement in inflation break-evens that was as large since these markets got invented, since these index bonds got invented many years ago. Right. The Fed may be very clear about that, but the former Fed chair, who is now the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, wasn't quite as clear this week. One of the big issues for investors was when she came out and said in response to a question, she said, well, look, at, uh, we may get to a point where the market's heating up enough so that we actually have to increase rates. She came back out afterwards and said, well, I really wasn't trying to predict. At the same time, what did you make of what she had to say? I felt for Janet. Uh, I've, uh, I've been there. People make comments. They get interpreted in a certain way, and the markets get very excited and see strategy where there's only um, innocent economic uh, commentary. I, I don't think that is a big deal. On the other hand, what she said was self-evidently true, that if the economy gets going sufficiently strong and there starts to be inflationary pressures, as part of containing those pressures, interest rates will be raised. I don't see how a reasonable person could disagree with that uh, statement. And the fact that that was so alarming in markets to the point where she felt it necessary to provide further clarification of that I think points up what is really quite dangerous in uh, our macroeconomic strategy between monetary and fiscal policy. We're creating a sense for markets that it's always going to be let the good times roll. And I think when people get the idea that the punch bowl's never going to be removed until there are actually people dr staggering around drunk at the party, it makes it more likely that the party's going to get out of control. Okay, thanks so very much to our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Adding a new letter to the C-suite. First it was CEO, then CFO, and CIO, and CTO, and CDO. But what about CHO? It's all about climate these days, from President Biden putting climate at the very top of his agenda. To companies like AB InBev linking how much interest they pay to whether they accomplish greenhouse gas emissions goals. To investors like Sam Zell just not investing in oil and gas anymore at all because the risk reward has shifted in the wrong direction. Pretty much everyone agrees that we're seeing and feeling the effects of climate change in the weather. And it turns out that the biggest source of death from weather in the United States isn't hurricanes or tornadoes, it is heat. Which takes us to that new member of the C-suite, the chief heat officer. Miami-Dade County has just appointed its first ever CHO, and Athens and Freetown, Sierra Leone are soon to follow. 
Jane Gilbert is Miami-Dade's interim CHO, working on ways to protect the most vulnerable populations from heat, creating things like resilience hubs where people can go to cool off when they need to, and working with employers to protect workers out in the noonday sun in fields or in construction sites. She even wants to start naming and ranking heat waves the way we do storms, complete with early warning systems. So, maybe coming soon to an eyewitness news near you, we may well have the Doppler 3000 heat map. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.